Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page, and you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Okay, let's start tonight by quickly updating you on a completely predictable event that literally everyone expected to happen. Elon Musk's SpaceX satellite train of 60 Starlink satellites is already causing trouble for astronomers. Researchers at a Chilean observatory had to deal recently with the ultra-bright objects cutting through their field of vision in what many are fearing will be the new norm. According to a tweet from astronomer Clare Martinez-Vasquez, the satellites took a full five minutes to pass over the Cerro Tololo Inter-American Observatory. Wow, I am in shock, tweeted Martinez Vesquez. The huge amount of Starlink satellites crossed our skies tonight at Cerro Tololo. Our DEC cam, dark energy camera, exposure was heavily affected by 19 of them, to which she added, rather depressing, this is not cool. Now, th the impact was actually minimal overall during this particular pass. The real issue is that Musk's company wants to eventually have tens of thousands of these satellites covering the night skies. Cliff Johnson, a team member and a Sierra postdoc fellow in astronomy at Northwestern University, explained that only one of their exposures was affected by the satellite trails. And in that exposure, only about 15% of the image was affected. But beyond the image itself, we also had to be careful as the trail-affected image also impacted our survey operations due to the large number of image artifacts biasing our quality control measurements. And he said that while this reached only annoyance level rather than total disruption, he also noted that this may only be the beginning of problems for astronomers, so I believe the community reaction and alarm is warranted. Now, the problem isn't just the few that have launched at the moment, but the near fact that the few will soon become legion. I agree with the tone of the recent IAU statement that calls for immediate, meaningful discussion between regulators, satellite providers, and astronomers to highlight ways that impact highlight ways that impacts to astronomy can be minimized, and not just optical, but radio astronomy as well, and rule out the worst-case scenarios of unlimited launches and unchecked deployments, Johnson told Gizmodo. Now, of course, the FCC seems to have little sympathy for astronomers. They have already granted Musk's company approval to launch 12,000 Starlink smallsats, and, and the company has asked for another 30,000 by the mid-2020s. And of course, that's not all, because Musk competitors like OneWeb, Telsat, and Jeff Bezos's Amazon are soon going to be leaping into the fray. And so it seems that the host of experts who from the beginning have noted that this would be a disaster for astronomy have been proven correct 
but unfortunately it may all be to no avail. So yes, uh, unsurprising thing is unsurprising, but very infuriating. Um, I just, I don't have anything nice to say about this story, so I'm just going to move on. (laughs) So let's do that. Let us move on now to a story about something that's actually kind of hopeful, uh, which is the uh, possible development of a new antibiotic. And so uh, this is especially important because it's a new antibiotic against gram-negative bacteria. The last commercially developed antibiotic for this class of bacteria was developed in the 1960s. And as we know, we've had a lot of antibiotic resistance developed since that time. Now, researchers have been looking into human gut and soil bacteria for natural antibacterial agents, but this newest one comes from a different sort source. The, this newest candidate for an antibiotic has been found in bacteria which live in the microbiomes of roundworms that parasitize insects. They are called enteropathogenic nematodes. And so the reason that they were considered a candidate for possible antibiotics is the fact that the worms release bacteria into the insects, and that bacteria then must combat the bacteria already present in the insect larva, but must also work against other bacteria released by the nematodes, such as, importantly, E. coli. And so an international team of researchers led by co-authors Yu Imai and Kirsten Meyer of the Antimicrobial Discovery Center at the Department of Biology at Northeastern University uh, in Boston looked into whether or not they could isolate an antibiotic from these nematode symbionts. And so usually, in order to see if a potential microorganism contains an antibiotic or produces an antibiotic, uh, you'd grow it on a plate along with the pathogenic bacteria, in this case E. coli, in order to see if the microorganism stops the growth of the pathogen. Now, of course, researchers did this because that's the standard uh, protocol when you are trying to discover new antibiotics. Unfortunately, they found that it did not sufficiently inhibit the E. coli. However, they suspected that this was simply a measure of concentration. And so when they concentrated the uh, nematode gut cultures and added them as a larger proportion to the E. coli, it was stopped from growing. And so they found that the compound contained a seven amino acid long peptide chain This is basically a shorter version of a protein. And it turns out that this peptide uh, is not produced very readily by the bacteria, but rather is produced by rhizomes and apparently at very slowly and at low levels generally. Now, the researchers have called this peptide chain uh, that is a potential antibiotic darabactin. And so it turns out that it's actually made by several different kinds of bacteria, including Yersinia pestis, the gram-negative bacteria that causes plague, and which we talked about just last week. (laughs) Um, 
Now, it's actually really interesting because it's, it's odd. It's too large of a molecule to get across the outer membrane of the bacteria that it's targeting. So that's usually how things are able to target cells is that they're able to get into, uh, cross through the outer membrane into the inner cell, and then they wreak havoc within the cell. But with, um, with this particular molecule, with the darobactin, it's actually doing something different. And so they basically, uh, what they had to do was they had to develop a strain of E. coli that was actually resistant to it in order to figure out what was going on. And so by doing that, the researchers found that the strains with resistance all had mutations in a protein called BAMA or BAMA, which encodes a chaperone protein. And so BAMA chaperone proteins transport other proteins that belong in the outer membrane to their correct placement and help fold them into their correct three-dimensional orientation. So if you remember, the whole thing about proteins is that they are long um, stretches of um, peptides that are then are folded into specific three-dimensional shapes. And so those three-dimensional shapes are very important. And so this chaperone protein helps move them and also to help them move into their correct orientation. And so what happens is that the darobactin works by binding to BAMA after it's stuck to one of the outer membrane proteins. And thus, it locks it into place, making it unable to continue the job of creating a functional outer membrane. And so basically, it locks it in place. And then what happens is that there isn't enough of it that is continuing to be produced in order for the actual cell to be properly built and that it collapses. And so... BAM-A is one of only two essential proteins expressed on the outer surface of gram-negative bacteria. And so this means that the door is open to finding other microorganisms that also exploit this molecule. And those might lead to even other, the development of other new antibacterial agents. And so they did find that darobactin actually does specifically have potential to become a therapeutic against gram-negative pathogens. And so they did tests where they um, took um, animals and had and treated them with darobactin for infections, and it worked very well. Um, and so they really do see potential there. Um, of course, as we all know, uh, Things that happen in mouse studies aren't necessarily something that's going to happen, uh, translate into human studies. There might be some reason why darobactin doesn't work for humans. It might be. Um, but it's very exciting nonetheless because, again, the last one we were able to develop was in the 1960s. And gram-negative bacteria are some of the hardest to kill and they're some of the, the most uh, virulent uh, so E. coli, Yersinia pestis, all of these are gram-negative bacteria, and they have been creeping further and further along the road to complete antibiotic resistance. Um, and I know that I often sound a little bit of a doomsday uh, 
preacher on this, but um, antibiotic resistance is a huge big deal. Um, it is very frightening and uh, I don't think we talk about it nearly as much as we should. Um, you know, it's not quite as awful as, uh, you know, some of the more extreme forms of climate change that we're facing right now. Uh, but it's it's a pretty big problem. And um, the amount of people who are dying from untreatable uh, forms of uh, pathogens that used to be easily uh easily um, healed using antibiotics is, is, it's not good. (laughs) Um, But hopefully, hopefully this is, this is good. We're finding new, uh, we're finding new compounds in symbiotic microbes. And so hopefully we'll find some other symbiotic microbes that might hold the key to more compounds that can be developed into new antibiotics. And that would be amazing. (laughs) Okay. So let us slightly switch gears now and move on to talk about somewhere that is truly antibiotic in the most literal sense. Hydrothermal pools surrounding the Dalal volcano in northern Ethiopia are the very definition of extreme environments. And now, We have discovered many extremophiles over the last few decades, which are um, usually microbes, um, archaea, things like that, that can actually live in what are extreme environments. Um, You know, 50 years ago, we would never have thought that there would be things, um, that there would be any organisms that could survive in, say, um, you know, the uh, ultra saline hot springs in, um, you know, Yellowstone or here in uh, this area of Ethiopia around this volcano, we would have never thought we'd find anything. And we have over the years. And we found, you know, other things living, um, you know, under the Arctic. (laughs) They've drilled down into the Arctic and found pools where there are biota there. Um, and 50 years ago, we would have never, ever believed that that was something that we were going to find. And so, um, you know, this is still a very sort of new science, um, but it is pretty impressive that we found these crazy extremophiles. Um, but it turns out that it might be that some of these pools here are actually truly devoid of life. And so study senior author Purificacion Lopez Garcia, the research director at the French National Center for Scientific Research, notes that we found microbes that can survive in super hot, super acidic, or super salty environments, among other extreme conditions. But the question that the researchers wanted to know was could they survive in places that are all three? And so the researchers sampled a number of brines, which are pools containing high concentrations of salt in the area around the volcano. Some were all three, but others were just hot and salty, but fairly neutral. And then they ran eDNA analysis to identify any organisms living within the water. Now, some of the milder pools featured large amounts of sodium chloride, which some microscopic organisms can withstand. However, 
others featured large quantities of magnesium-based salt, which is, quote, deleterious for life, (laughs) Uh, because it apparently breaks down the cell membrane, according to Lopez Garcia. Now, the team found that in the samples from the hot, acidic, and magnesium-based salty pools, there was almost no evidence of DNA. And so this suggests nothing was able to survive in such pools. Now, they were able to find a small trace of DNA from archaea, which are single-celled organisms, but only by repeatedly replicating the process to look for DNA until they found minute traces of said DNA. But they suggest that this is most likely contamination from nearby pools via either visitors or animals or the wind. And so there is a lot of uh, transference going on in this area. Now, the less extreme ponds were actually a very different story. The diversity of archaea is really very, very large and very surprising, Lopez Garcia said. They found both archaea that have been found in other areas of high salt concentrations, along with others that the researchers hadn't even suspected of being able to tolerate such harsh conditions. And one of the things that they talked about was how this might be a lesson for those searching for life on other planets. There is this idea that says any planet with liquid water on the surface is habitable, she said. But given the findings in the magnesium-rich pools, water might be a necessary condition, but it is far from sufficient. And even more bad news for those searching for signs of life was also found. The team found the presence of biomorphs. These are mineral precipitates that can mimic tiny cells in samples both from the archaea-free and the archaea-rich pools. If you go to Mars or to fossil environments and you see little rounded things, you might be tempted to say that these are microfossils, but they might not be, explained Lopez Garcia. Now, there is some debate concerning the findings. Writing a commentary accompanying the paper, which was published in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution, John Halsworth, a lecturer at the Institute for Global Food Security at Queen's University, Belfast, in Northern Ireland, wrote that the DNA evidence presented couldn't tell if the organisms were alive or dead, and he also questioned the precision of the measurements of water factors such as pH. Despite this, he wrote that the team managed to characterize the geochemistry and microbial diversity of a large number of brines that span a wide range of physiochemical conditions, revealing the extensive diversity of the archaeal communities present. Now, to add to the possible contradictions, another team who sampled the same area just a few months ago came to the opposite conclusion as the current team. Felipe Gomez, a biochemist at Spain's Center for Astrobiology and the lead author of that study, which was published back in May in the journal Scientific Reports, wrote that archaea were quote-unquote thriving even in the most extreme ponds. 
Given the risk of detecting any type of contamination, microbiologists that work in extreme environments take many precautions to avoid it, he said. In our work, we sampled in completely aseptic conditions. Uh, And so those are presumably free from contamination. Now, it's unclear why there is a discrepancy between the studies. And though they claim that we do not see what we report, that doesn't mean the older findings are incorrect. He said, more work needs to be done. Now, Lopez Garcia, for her part, suggests that the other paper is weak because they only found traces of one kind of archaea that is similar to that living in the neighboring salt plains and contests whether they did enough to prevent contamination. She reiterated her suggestion that dispersal is active in the area. So, as Gomez suggests, more work will need to be done. Um, and, you know, this is kind of how science works. Uh, it's often this bit of uh, back and forth where, um, you know, you do get conflicting science because, um, you know, it really depends on the conditions of that day and things like that. And so, you know, it is sometimes hard when you have one paper that says one thing and another paper that says another thing. And you just are like, well, which one's right? And it's unfortunately, the answer can be they are both right uh, in the sense that they were both right at the time when the samples were taken, when things were done, um, especially in an active environment like that, where there can be, um, you know, movement, uh, it's not a, it's not a closed system, basically. And so pretty much anywhere that you are working on Earth is not a closed system. Um, and of course, you know, unless you're in a library, uh, sorry, in a laboratory, uh, in a, you know, clean room, and are doing things very precisely, uh, everywhere else, there's always the potential for contamination. Um, there's always the potential that... Uh, you know, some wind has just blown a bunch of microorganisms into the pool that you sampled that otherwise would never be there. Um, And so that's why a lot of times we talk about replication, because that's what you need to do. You need to be able to go back and replicate it and make sure that at some point you get enough versions of it where you're getting the same results. But the other cool, th- but the really cool thing about this, though, is still, you know, that idea of these extremophiles. You know, it's a fascinating corner of biological research to keep finding places where, you know, the limits of life should have long ago been reached. And yet you have these tiny microorganisms surviving in these extremely salty, extremely acidic or basic extremely, you know, hot or cold environments. And so it's very cool. Um, And so it's obviously an active area of research. And that's what good science is. (laughs) Okay, Uh, let us take a moment and do some PSAs and show promos. And then uh, we're going to go back to talking about alien life for a few more minutes. Um, So do not, uh, do not miss that. Okay. So please do stay tuned uh, after these messages.
Hello, this is John Hodgman, resident expert for The Daily Show with John Stewart and author of More Information Than You Require, speaking into a small machine, representing WXOJLP Northampton Valley Free Radio, found on your radio dial at 103.3 frequency modulation. That is all. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Has anyone ever asked you, don't you have enough records? Adventure Rocket Ship is new and old. Indie pop, psych pop, post-punk, shoegaze, lots of chiming, jangly guitars and catchy melodies from both artists you know and obscure 7-inch singles from around the world. Adventure Rocket Ship, Tuesday nights, 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio. Hey everyone, DJ Man of Nowhere here. Tune in to our show Arts Electronica, dedicated to downtempo, ambient, electronic and house music, but also techno and trance, with a hint of progressive and deep house, dubstep and experimental. We'll have all the music wizards here that bring to life their poetry throughout their sound spaces, soundscapes and sound sculptures. Arts Electronica goes live on Saturdays at midnight to 2 a.m. Sunday morning. Check us out. Thanks for asking, but I'd rather not send you nude pictures. I'm camera shy. I already said no. Under my clothes, I'm a robot. My webcam is broken. I'm worried they'll get passed around school. I have a rash. I have nudophobia. I have lizard skin. I'm a vampire, so I don't show up in pictures anyways. Your badgering has really killed the mood. When someone is pressuring you to do something you don't want to, how many ways can you say no before they get the message? Let us know at that'snotcool.com. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Fresh Sounds with your host, Ron Freshly. Tuesdays from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. on WXOJLP. Bringing you the music of Bud Powell, Wardell Gray, Art Blakey, Duke Ellington, Abby Lincoln, Tad Dameron, Yousef Latif, Bix Beiderbeck, Cassandra Wilson, Tom Harrell, Jane Ira Bloom, and thousands more. Worried about climate change? Want to do something about it? Join Congressman James McGovern, State Senator Joe Comerford, Northampton Mayor David Narkowitz, and Community Actions Claire Higgins as they answer questions on the Green New Deal, Monday, April 22nd at 6 p.m. at Northampton High School. Sorry about that. I didn't realize that was overdue. <laughs> um, but the Green New Deal is still very good. And uh, we should all support it. Um, at least, you know, I think that. <laughs> okay. Um, so let us move on. And we are going to talk about alien life, as I mentioned. And so the most likely form of alien life that we are going to find will be microscopic. Um, I don't believe we're going to find actual organisms anywhere. Uh, certainly not in my lifetime, probably not in your lifetime. Um, 
you know, I love Star Trek as much as the next gal, but uh, if we're going to find any life, at least in, uh, especially in the sort of uh, local neighborhood, it's almost certainly going to be microscopic. And it definitely, almost certainly will not be complex life forms, for instance, like insects or reptiles, which brings us to our next story. William Ramoser, a professor emeritus who specializes in arbovirology, which is the study of viruses transmitted by arthropods, and entomology at Ohio University, has been compiling photographs from the NASA Mars rovers and has been scrutinizing them for signs of life. (laughs) He said in a statement, which, to be fair to Ohio University, is no longer available on their website, but has been cached uh, via the Internet Archive. There has been and still is life on Mars. And so he pointed to supposed evidence of both living and fossilized organisms in the pictures. There is supposed... Um, There is apparent diversity among the Martian insect-like fauna, which display many features similar to Terran insects that are interpreted as advanced groups. For example, the presence of wings, wing flexion, agile gliding slash flight, and variously structured leg elements. Now, he presented a poster of his findings earlier this week at the National Meeting of the Entomological Society of America in St. Louis, Missouri. And while some of the photos do bear a glancing resemblance to living Earth forms, they are simply interpretations carried out by a particular human. Now, I have talked a lot about the phenomenon of periodolia in the past. Um, It's one of my favorite words, (laughs) and I'm actually personally very prone to it. Um, I am very easy. It's very easy for me to find the human face in random assortments of lines and circles or boxes, um, all of those sorts of things. I'm always like, oh, that looks like a person. Oh, that's a smiley face. I'm totally, my brain is a pattern-seeking animal. We are all pattern-seeking animals. My brain is particularly tied to uh, facial expressions. I tend to be someone who is very interested in facial expressions, so it's not really surprising. I don't like masks. Um, (laughs) I find people wearing masks to often be very hard to deal with. Um, And so, yeah, not surprising. And on top of that, many of these images images are frankly of low quality. So this means that not only are you interpreting a thing from a simple photograph, but that photograph may be pixelated in a way that really makes it impossible to interpret fully. And I'm also reminded of the infamous face on Mars, which turned out to be nothing more than the product of shadows and poor resolution from a camera that was not able to take high resolution shots. The cameras that were sent to Mars in the 50s, I'm sorry, in the 60s and 70s, didn't have great resolution. And so when we went back to Mars in the last, you know, decade, and we've taken much better pictures, you can see it's just a, it's just, you know, a a set of mountains or a hillside. Um, And so it's really just not what people thought it was. And so it's really just the fact that 
people see things very easily. I think it's really easy to find patterns in image in images, especially when they're out of context. Nina Lanza, a planetary scientist at Los Alamos National Laboratory, told Space.com. They're little clips of larger images, and there's no scale bar on them. You can imagine a lot of different shapes in there. And that's not a good way to do this kind of assessment. Now, um, the thing about scale, scale bars is actually really kind of important. So for instance, um, I was shopping for, uh, with my husband the other day, we were shopping for uh, suitcases, and there were pictures of suitcases. And I kept being like, but how big is it? I need a picture of it next to a person or I need a scale bar (laughs) because you could be looking at a suitcase and imagine it to be something that would come up to your hip. And then it turns out to be something that only comes up to your shins um, because there's no, uh, there's nothing there to compare it to. And so it's very important that either you have an actual, um, if you'll see, you'll see in a lot of um, archaeological photography, they actually put in a little, um, it's either, you know, a little uh, ruler or a piece of paper or something that has an actual scale bar on it. And that helps you understand that, you know, this might be something huge or it might be something tiny. Um, and that's really important. And so the other thing is I have seen many a YouTube video claiming all sorts of things that are supposedly found on Mars. Apparently there's a spoon on Mars. There is a bunch of like statues on Mars of various things that people have seen. And it's just, you know, people see things. Uh, And so unless there is a video from the rover of an actual bug that you can actually tell is a bug or another creature literally crawling across the frame of view, I am going to continue to assume that these are just rocks. Now, Ramoser was an entomology professor at Ohio University for 45 years. He co-founded its Tropical Disease Institute and also spent nearly 20 years as a visiting vector-borne disease researcher at the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases. In addition, between 1973 and 1998, Ramoser authored and co-authored four editions of the widely used textbook, The Science of Entomology. So I am in no way, shape, or form trying to compare him to a crackpot on YouTube. But it is, in fact, that very expertise that might be leading him astray. So Space.com also talked to David Madison, a professor in the Integrative Biology Department at Oregon State University, who wrote... I personally have periodolia with respect to insects, beetles in particular. I've worked on beetles for decades. I have collected many thousands of beetles around the world. Through the years, I have built into my brain a pattern recognition system for picking out beetles. He continued, I do not think there are insects on Mars. The photographs that are in the press release you sent are entirely unconvincing, as they fall within the range expected in zillions of non-insect objects photographed in lowish resolution on a Marscape. It is vastly more parsimonious to presume the blobs are simply rocks. As As has been said, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, Those pictures are far, far less than extraordinary. So yeah, (laughs) 
And so Rasmuser uh, did note himself that the interpretations of these forms may change in the future as knowledge of life on Mars evolves, but he continued to insist that the volume of different things that he had found suggested that they really were actual animate life forms on Mars. And one of the things that that we want to talk about is um, Lanza points out that there is actual harm that can come from this sort of assertion. It's not just pat him on the head and say, you know, nice try, but that's not really what's there. Uh, And so she points out, when we have this kind of sensationalist headline, it's really hard for the public to know whether or not this is true. It seems legitimate. It's coming from Ohio University. These are real institutions. And so when we actually find something on Mars and beyond, if we do that, it will be less of an impact. People keep hearing, we've already found life on Mars. It takes away from the excitement from our real discoveries, she added. Now, um, NASA is working hard on finding if there is any life in the solar system. And if they do find it, they will definitely announce it as soon as it has been confirmed. There's no conspiracy at NASA to hide any kind of truth about life in the solar system or beyond. That's just the way it is. We haven't yet been able to make that statement, but we are looking, Lanza said. We are just as excited. We want to do this too. We are going to tell you as soon as we find life. So yeah, there's no conspiracy. There's no... Uh, you know, we're not saying that this person is wrong because we want to belittle him in any way, shape, or form, but it's important to know what is and isn't true in this, and really in all respects. Um, But it's really hard to keep dealing with people being like, oh, there's totally things on Mars when it's not, it's just pareidolia. It's just low resolution or context-free images that just don't give you enough information and your brain fills in the rest. Um, Our brains are very good at lying to us. Um, They're very good at, you know, helping us get through things. And a lot of times that involves white lies to ourselves. Um, And I know that's sometimes a hard concept to understand that your brain is lying to you since your brain is a part of you. Um, But your brain fills in details. It, you know, It doesn't, when you look at something, you're not looking at that thing in the way that your brain interprets it as. You are getting a mosaic. Um, Your brain fills in bits that it's already uh, sort of held in the back of its mind. So like it'll take sort of a, a screenshot sort of of the background. And so it just keeps that background going in your vision. So it only tries to concentrate on the things that are changing. And even then, sometimes you get what is called change blindness, that your brain just basically puts that on as an actual screensaver. (laughs) And so people will move and do things in the scene and you don't even notice. Um, And so your brain is often lying to you and often it's trying to, it's trying to be helpful. It's saying, I see a pattern, Um, but that pattern isn't really there. Okay. So let us switch gears now. And I want to talk about a couple of things that are very much something that science can kind of agree upon and can really show that that's what's going on. 
um, and they're good things. So it's exciting. So the first thing I want to talk about is brain scans of children that reveal that there is no difference in the brain activity of girls and boys when processing math, which, you know, scientists have been pretty clear about, but obviously some other people haven't gotten the memo. Researchers studied MRI brain scans of 104 children between the ages of 3 and 10, 55 girls and 49 boys, while they were watching a video on basic maths topics. They found that there was no significant difference between the brains of the two genders. There was also no significant difference between how engaged the kids were in topics presented to them, nor in the development of the brain of the older children. Science doesn't align with folk beliefs, says neuroscientist Jessica Cantlin from Carnegie Mellon University. We see that children's brains function similarly regardless of their gender, so hopefully we can re- calibrate expectations of what children can achieve in mathematics. Now, much of the activity took place in the intraparietal sulcus, which is a region that is known to be associated with estimating numbers, processing numbers written as words, and doing basic maths, such as addition and subtraction. Now, the researchers also tested 97 children between 3 and 8, in this case, 50 girls and 47 boys, on a maths test and found no difference between ability between the genders and no difference between ability and brain maturity. It's not just that boys and girls are using the math network in the same ways, but that similarities were evident across the entire brain, says psychologist Alyssa Kersey from the University of Chicago. This is an important reminder that humans are more similar to each other than we are different. Now, the research is actually published in the journal Science of Learning, and the researchers next plan to follow these students over a number of years to see if there is any change when introduced to more complicated math that requires understanding of things like uh, complex functions, Uh, spatial processing, memory, things like this. And so the team is hoping its results will help end the stigma attached to women in STEM, uh, which is science, technology, engineering, and math. Because at present, women account for only a fifth of the STEM doctorates awarded, um, at least here in the States. Typical socialization can exacerbate small differences between boys and girls that can snowball into how we treat them in science and math, said Cantillon. We need to be cognizant of these origins to ensure we aren't the ones causing the gender inequalities. So yeah, we have to be careful that we are not perpetuating this idea that boys are better at math. And so when when the little girls hear that, they assume, oh, well, I'm not good at math then because I'm not a boy. And so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so there have been a lot of research into this. And there's some, um, again, it's one of those places in science where some some research says one thing, some research says another thing. Um, but there definitely have been studies that show that if you have a young woman read a uh, article about how basically women aren't good at math, then they will do worse on tests than uh, 
girls who are given a sheet that says something else. Um, and so, you know, there is definitely this idea uh, in psychology where you have these issues with expectation. And so people will uh, act according to expectation. And so if we can continue to really get out in front of this and say, no, the science says there's no difference when you have small children. So when we have small children, we need to just start treating them all the same exact way, treat them as if math is equally easy or hard for them, depending on how you want to approach it, uh, but that there is no difference between the genders in this. Um, and of course, you know, also there's a spectrum of gender, um, but that's a completely different thing to talk about. Uh, but anyways, that's another part of it. It's too, it's that, you know, we, we now know that, that gender is not dichotomous. There aren't just boys and girls and there isn't a boy brain and a girl brain. Like that's just not um, how we think about uh, gender anymore in sort of most mainstream science. And so, yeah, it's definitely something that we need to be thinking about when we are doing early childhood education, because that's really where it starts. And so if you are treating all of the kids the same, then hopefully we will continue to see a growth in young women being confident in math and in science and engineering, and we will get more women into STEM fields. And also we will start to kind of crack that idea in uh, STEM fields that is already there, that women aren't there because they're not good enough. Um, it's rather that they were discouraged because they were told that they weren't good enough. Um, you know, it really is a problem where if you're told that you're not good enough, you know, a lot of women aren't just are just going to be like, you know what, I don't want to push against this. It's too hard. And no one should be ever, no one should ever have to apologize for not wanting to be the person that pushes against uh, these sorts of glass ceilings. I want to make that very clear. Um, and, you know, I personally am a person who totally went into the humanities. Um, and so, you know, I, my, my, uh, actual um, college degree is in history and the history of the sciences, but again, from a humanities rather than a hard science side. And so, yeah. And uh, I, I will admit freely that even though it's not true, I have joked that I agree with Barbie that math is hard. <laughs> Okay, let's move on. <laughs> and uh, so this is another new uh, story, which is, or report, about another research topic where traditional assumptions are, are being challenged. And here, it's really clear in some ways, at least to me, that there have been assumptions that have colored the way that we've thought about this. And so that's the reason why we are... Um, have been thinking about it potentially the wrong way for a long time. And so a new paper suggests that evolutionary scientists have been thinking about same-sex behavior wrong. 
the authors of a new paper published in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution, decided to flip the question from why do animals engage in same-sex behavior to why not? Usually, when evolutionary biologists see a trait that's really widespread across evolutionary lineages, we at least consider the idea that the trait is ancestral and was preserved in all those lineages, said Julia Monk, a doctoral candidate at Yale University who co-authored the new research. So why hadn't people considered that hypothesis for SSB? We know that at least 1,500 species, ranging from squash bugs all the way to, well, humans, engage in SSB, but for the longest time, the question was, why would they do something that doesn't benefit them passing along their genes to the next generation? There doesn't seem to be any reason for it to be helpful towards their fitness, which is what evolution is all about. Now, one note, uh, it's important to uh, to remember that researchers don't refer to animals using terms like homosexual or heterosexual or gay or straight or any of that thing, any of that sort. We can't assign sexuality to animals. We're trying our best to learn about them by observing their behaviors, Monk told Live Science. And those behaviors shouldn't be mapped onto human, cultural, and societal contexts. Now, assuming that it must have been some evolutionary reason for developing, researchers have tried to look for benefits. They've noted that women who have a gay son or brother tend to have more offspring in total. Others have suggested that genes for same-sex behavior are simply in close connection to other genes that are conserved for fitness reasons. But Rather than search for such reasons, Monk and her team posit that the earliest sexually producing, reproducing animals may simply have tried to mate with any other member of their species. This actually makes a lot of sense because the complex signals that developed to distinguish the sexes actually developed later and are energetically costly to evolve. So the energy expenditure of sometimes meeting unsuccessfully would almost certainly be less than that to develop secondary sex characteristics, explains Caitlin McDonoghue, a doctoral candidate at Syracuse University and the other study co-author. Now, this would suggest a much more, again, parsimonious reason for the continued persistence of same-sex behavior throughout different families of organisms. Rather than developing over and over in different species, it was a trait of a distant common ancestor that has simply persisted in many species. If you assume a trait like SSB is a new development and has high costs, it's going to be really hard to understand how it could become more and more common from those low initial frequencies, she said. It would have had to it would have to have really large fitness benefits or be otherwise impervious to natural selection for that outcome to be probable. On the other hand, if you assume a trait is ancestral and was originally common and it has a and it has low costs, it's much more likely that it would remain widespread to this day, even if it doesn't seem to contribute much to fitness. So basically the idea is if it's not broke, why fix it? <laughs> um, in some respects, like if it's something that's not really affecting the fitness in a negative way, then there's no reason to get rid of it. 
Um, and so the researchers point out as a um, sort of a point in their favor towards this being correct, that some um, echinoderms, such as sea urchins and sea stars, do engage in same-sex sexual behavior. And so echinoderms are among the earliest living life living forms of life. They evolved likely in the Precambrian period. So that's over 541 million years ago. So, you know, that's pretty basal to the, uh, to the evolutionary tree. Now, they do, however, note, uh, very candidly, the positive evidence is actually rather slim. Because, for instance, there hasn't been much research specifically gauged towards systematically studying SSB in organisms of any kind. Most observations have been accidental, as researchers were studying other traits. In addition, they note that researchers may have also felt that it was improper or irrelevant to record such behavior. They also have a tendency to assume that when you see two organisms uh, being together, having uh, mating, that it is a female and a male. And so if they don't have a lot of secondary sex characteristic differences, you just assume. And so uh, that also can color your research. And there have been hypotheses developed as well that suggest that SSB is about dominance or bonding rather than sex. Um, a lot of that happens in primate research. Um, that's often the uh, idea is that it's about you know, bonding, it's about dominance, it's not about um, actually engaging in, um, in same-sex behavior for anything other than those kinds of um, reasons. The science that we do is really informed and influenced by cultural biases. Uh, next, um, said Monk. And so the next steps she says, should be to gather more information, stunningly enough, on the prevalence of same-sex behaviors across the tree of life, and that will help them determine where it may have started. So again, you have all of these different organisms that have this behavior. It seems really unreasonable, actually, when you take a few minutes to think about it, that they would have all developed it by themselves. Um, I think it makes much more sense that it is ancestral to a common ancestor and has just been sort of pulled down through the ages. Okay, so that is all the time we have for tonight. And um, next week will be a uh, rerun of some sort as I will be home um, visiting my parents for Thanksgiving. Uh, but I will be back after that and we will talk about more weird and interesting things. Have a great week and happy Thanksgiving to you all. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.